Uh, yeah, it's always good to be here. Thanks, Coastside. You are so warm and welcoming to me uh, and my family. Um, yeah, I'm excited to, to get in today. So this morning, we're going to be looking at what the book of Proverbs, I know you guys have been sitting roof, but we're going to take a little detour, uh, what the book of Proverbs has to teach us about the relationship between parents and children. And so... Before you check out, like, oh, man, uh, let me, because you don't have kids or you don't want kids, let me give you a few reasons to stay dialed into this message, okay? If you have kids, you don't need to stay dialed in. You already know you need as much help as you can get. Um, or maybe you're someone that's already raised kids, you've already been there, done that, and you don't feel like a message on parenting might apply to you. Or maybe you're just sitting there not having any kids, not wanting kids now, possibly ever. Um, you're happy as is, you're unencumbered and free from the responsibility of parenthood. You're the person who goes to the mall and sees the kids and they're just like, I'm so glad I don't have kids. Uh, maybe you're like a character. His name is Will Freeman aptly in uh, Nick Hornby. It's a really great book called About a Boy. Uh, it was also turned into a movie. Maybe you've seen it starring Hugh Grant. Uh, it's an older movie, uh, but it's called About a Boy. And it's a story, a really, it's a really excellent movie. It's a story about one single man's kind of surprising journey into a kind of surrogate fatherhood where he sort of unwillingly becomes a father figure for uh, a kid in his neighborhood. His name's Marcus, who needs him. Uh, the boy, he's in a tough situation. His mother is depressed and suicidal. Uh, this film is a comedy, surprisingly. Um, and, and Will, he sort of stumbles into this father-parent relationship with Marcus. Sometimes parenting can even sneak up on you. And in the film version, About a Boy opens with Will Freeman reflecting on his own life and John Donne's famous poem about the interconnectedness of humanity called No Man is an Island. Maybe you read that in like lit class. I'll read it to you again. Uh, imagine it in a really wonderful British uh, voice. Uh, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were as well as any manner of thy friends or thine own were, any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Basically, John Don, he's saying we're all connected. Each of us is impacted by one another. Even us, our parents or adults, are impacted by kids. But Will, in this movie, he totally disagrees. And here is what he says. He says, in my opinion, all men are islands. And what's more, now is the time to be one. This is the island age. A hundred years ago, you had to depend on other people. No one had TVs or CDs or DVDs or videos or home espresso makers. Uh, they actually didn't have anything cool. Whereas now you see, you can make yourself a little island paradise. You with the right supplies, the right attitude, you can be sun-drenched, tropical, a magnet for young Swedish tourists. <laughs> Will, he's reflecting, and he's like, what does parenting have to do with me? Now, you're going to have to watch the rest of the film, but Will, he ends up changing his view, and through his relationship with this boy, Marcus, he begins to see that no man really is an island, that we are all connected, that not only does he need to help others, but he needs the help of others. He, he's not a parent in the traditional sense, but he becomes a parent to Marcus, this fatherless boy who needs help. And so this morning, even if you don't have kids, I would want to ask you, maybe there are children around you that need your help that need your investment. That it, really asking maybe that God even might be speaking to you about a way that you could help invest in a child that may surprisingly need your help in your sphere of influence. 
Uh, maybe you're here and you don't, have, uh, you don't have your own children, but you hope to have it in the future. You're hoping for that. And so it's a good day to listen maybe and gain some head start on the wisdom the Bible gives. Uh, maybe you're someone who's a grandparent. You've already raised kids. Maybe this is an encouragement as you're in that stage of life, reaching out to your children's children. And the final reason I would, reason I would encourage you to listen is that we are all children in some way. We all have parents, we have genetic parents, we have adoptive parents, we have surrogate parents, people who fulfill the role of father or mother in our life. Even if their efforts were partial or if their parenting wasn't that great, we're all children in some way. We all have parents in our own lives and histories. And the Bible gives us too instructions for how to be children. Even if we're grown, how we can relate to our parents, to those who've served as fathers and mothers of us. So there's a relevance for us here. It's a two-way street. I know for many of us in the Western world, we're very individualistic once we grow up. We don't really think about any ongoing responsibility we have to our parents. Uh, but the Bible, it, it's quite different. It instructs us no matter what our age, about how we can and should relate to those who've parented us, how we can honor them and serve our parents. So let's jump in this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at both the instructions that the book of Proverbs gives uh, to parents as well as what the Bible gives to children, looking a lot in the book of Proverbs primarily in a few different places. So let's start with parents. Uh, probably one of the most famous verses on parenting comes from the book of Proverbs, from chapter 22, verse 6. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you felt guilty about it. Uh, it should come up on the screen. This one is pure coffee mug, inspirational poster material. Uh, it says this, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I don't know if you're like me, maybe a little bit cynical and contrary, and you just think, that's not true. That's not true. I know plenty of people who go on to ignore their parents' training, and they live totally different than the way that their parents taught them. And if you're one of those people, you are totally right. There are many people that freely choose to live quite different from the way that their parents taught them and modeled things for them. And so it's important to remember kind of a word about the nature of the book of Proverbs. It, it, it's, it's, it's important that we understand the book of Proverbs is really more about like general truths uh, about reality and not really specific promises. And one of the ways you can get in trouble when you read the book of Proverbs is you read it like promises and not like Proverbs. Okay? Other parts of the Bible, they should definitely be understood uh, because of their literary genre and what they're saying, that, that, that they are promises and that they're true and they're specifically binding. But Proverbs is a bit more general in its instruction about reality. And so in this case, reading this proverb, we know that each person ultimately freely chooses how they're going to live. The Bible's quite clear about this. It has lots of examples about this playing out in real life. If you read about the kings in the Old Testament, there's kings that have great parents and end up being terrible kings. And there's kings that have terrible parents and end up being great kings who honor God with their life. And we all know this experientially as well, right? We have friends who were raised with certain values and live quite differently than their parents either way. And so Proverbs, it's not providing some kind of ironclad uh, promise that if you raise your kids well, then they will always turn out the way you hoped. That's not what Proverbs is saying. Each child will eventually be responsible for making their own choices about how they live. But we can do some things to make certain choices more likely, certain outcomes more palatable for our children. And while we can't guarantee our children's future, we can do things to increase the probability that they would choose certain paths. Uh, you can imagine this in the world. This is true on the extremes, both positively and negatively. Uh, children whose parents are abusive or neglectful are, most, are much more statistically, much more likely to abuse and neglect their own children. We see cycles of that kind of abuse. On the other end of the spectrum, if parents feed their kids well and provide healthy food, those, parent, those, parents are most like, or those kids are most likely to have healthy bodies and their kids will have healthy bodies. We, we see these sort of cycles of things happening, right? 
And we need to acknowledge basically the obvious, that how we engage or we don't engage with our children will affect their future, okay? So, but at the very least, I kind of deconstructed some of the promise bit of that. Proverbs, at the very least, instructs us to train our children. We need to be intentional about our parenting. That's what training is, right? It's intentionality. It's not haphazard or accidental. It's intentional. It's planned. And so here's my first point. Uh, We must intentionally train our children. And so what I'm going to do this morning is kind of build like a sentence. This is the first clause. There'll be probably four, I think. We must intentionally train our children. That's our first clause. Uh, A few years back, I had this goal, this very lofty goal. I was feeling like, man, I'm getting fat. I need to start exercising. Uh, I'm going to run a thousand miles this year. This was kind of a December, you know, thinking. Um, I hadn't run like 10 miles this previous year. Um, And so I I figured I could just jump in and go for it. But I would at least call somebody I know that's like a serious runner and just say, hey, man, I'm going to get into running this year. Why don't you give me some advice? And this is a guy that runs a ton. He said, you know what? The biggest encouragement I'll give you is just take it really slow, like really slow. Start like super gradual. Like take it as slow as you can. So your body can build up and you can go greater distances and you can handle more miles per week. And I was like, man, thank you so much. Um, But I did not listen to my friend, like at all. Day one, this is all true. Day one, January 1st, I went out and I ran five miles. Just boom, I'm gonna get it done. I felt so good, felt such a sense of accomplishment. Day two, five miles. Super good so far. Took a break on day three. Day four and day five, ran five miles both days. And I was feeling good, my times were going down. I was like, man, this is gonna be amazing. And then week two happened and it started to get harder. And my time started going like slower. I, I still got in five miles four times, but it was like I was really grinding it out. And then came week three. And I thought, this is going to be amazing. I was on a work trip. I was in Miami. And I, I went to the beach. And I'm like, all right, it's Monday. I'm going to run my five miles. And I just felt horrible, just terrible. My hip hurt. My knee hurt. And I finished the run, but it was like twice the normal time. And I felt pain all over my body. And if this is the point when a normal person would be like, OK, I need to take a break. But I was like, no pain, no gain. Let's just push through it. Tomorrow, five miles, you know? And so I go the next day, Tuesday, to run. And I literally can't run at all. Like, I, I could run like maybe 25 yards and I had to stop. And uh, I basically ended up injuring myself, hurting both my knees, uh, you know, somewhat significantly for a a month. And then I really couldn't run the rest of the year. So that whole year, I I, I didn't almost accomplish anything. Um, But then if you fast forward to this year, it's a few years later, I've learned my lesson. And so I started out running one mile three times a week and barely increasing, literally by one-tenth of a mile uh, each week what I was doing. And so this, it's like painfully slow, like horribly like short distances and sort of incrementally working, uh, moving up. And now I'm doing three and a half miles a day. I haven't missed a workout. And so it's taken months and months, way longer than I thought, but the plan is working. And so if you have a good training plan, it makes all the difference. And I think the thing to remember here is I was like ultra motivated both times. It wasn't about motivation. It wasn't about, was I excited about running? Did I have the energy to do it? Was I committed to it? I, all of those things were true. I just had a good plan one time and a terrible plan another. And so uh, we have to have a plan and we have to have a good plan. And so as you think about your parenting, do you have a plan? And, and maybe your plan is way too lofty. It's like way too hard. And maybe your plan on the other end is like way too simple. But do you have a plan to raise your kids? Have you uh, uh, engaged with people that you feel like are parents that you respect? Have you gotten outside counsel? Have you read? Uh, If you don't have a plan, I'd say you're very likely to end up like me uh, in pain and at risk of not accomplishing your goals. 
But I would also say that even if you feel like, man, I'm just winging it every day with my kids, um, which I, I do feel at times, uh, our God is a God of second, third, and 50th chances. And we can be encouraged. We can go to God for wisdom uh, from his word, how we can best train and instruct our kids from this day forward. We, we can start today. And so I hope this message helps you a bit to think of it as kind of a checkup of sorts. And so if we're supposed to intentionally train our kids, I want to ask a couple questions. What should we train them to do? How should we train them to? How should we train them to do it? And let's focus first focus on what we should train our children to do. So here's the second clause. We must intentionally train our children to be God-centered, to be God-centered. I want to read a couple verses from the book of Proverbs. This is Proverbs 14, 26, and 27. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. This is Proverbs 23, 15 through 17. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exalt when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Uh, third, this verse is a kind of an introduction to the book of Proverbs. Another one I want to read, and it serves as kind of a, kind of a foundation for the whole book. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so that phrase, fear of the Lord, uh, I think for some people can feel really off-putting. Like, man, I, I, you know, not very many of us walk around talking about the fear of the Lord, I don't think. Um, and so I want to unpack it just a little bit, uh, very briefly. I think it's better to think of that as, as, a, as a real intentional reverence, as a real um, centering around God. And if you think about Jesus, he definitely exhibited this. And when Jesus asked, we asked Jesus, like, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And I don't think Jesus is saying something opposite than the fear of the Lord. I think he's actually saying the same thing, that we are to put God first. We are to put God in the central place and worship him and fear him and love him with all of our whole being. And so if you put these two ideas together, I think the Bible is recommending that we have a view of God that puts him central in all of our lives. That instead of living in light of our own thoughts, instead of living in light of our own feelings and our own convictions, or even living in light of other people's thoughts and feelings and convictions, that we must first put importance on God. We need to care most about what God thinks, about what God feels, and about what God cares about. So often, man, I just know, right, we, we care so much about how we think, about how we feel, how other people think, how about other people feel, and we rarely are asking the question, how does God feel about this? How does God feel about this way that I'm living or thinking or acting? Um, and so what it means to live out what Proverbs calls the fear of the Lord would, would be what many people describe as being God-centered. To be God-centered. And being God-centered means that we view all of reality through God's lens. We would destroy any division between our spiritual life and the rest of our life. It means that we would live a fully integrated life where we're as aware of God on Monday at work or Friday with friends as we are Sunday here in church. Being God-centered means striving to view everything and everyone, every person, ourselves, our children, anyone we meet, the same way that God sees them. We want to look through his eyes and see the world. And I want to say this, being God-centered is the primary task of the Christian disciple, and helping our children to do this is the primary task of the Christian parent. Being God-centered is the primary task of the Christian disciple, and helping our children to do this is the primary task of the Christian parent. How does this change how we live and parent? First and foremost, I think it reminds us that our children belong to God before they belong to us. He made them. He has a plan for them. And it might be different than our plan for them. 
And so we need to sync up our plan with God's. We need to submit our plan to his. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that could look like practically, but I want to share a little bit about how we do this, how we help our children become God-centered. So let me add a third clause to that sentence we're doing. We must intentionally train our children to be God-centered by modeling godly character. By modeling godly character. Let me read Proverbs 23, verses 22 through 26. It says this, Listen to your father who gave you life. Do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. By wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. What this text describes is the joy that parents have when their kids live wise and godly lives. Maybe some of you experience that. Maybe some of you experience the heartache of that not happening. But it also describes how parents can help their kids get to this place, right? It shows that parents are training their kids, they're teaching them, they're instructing them. And finally, that last verse when it says, my son, give me your heart, let your eyes observe my ways. It shows the importance of parents modeling godly character for their kids to see. And the book of Proverbs, it has just a ton to say about godly character. It fleshes out what a God-centered and wise life looks like on every page and every chapter. And so one of the greatest gifts we can give our children is an example of a godly and wise life. Uh, We need to live this book, right? So that our kids can see and know how to live it as well. And we need the, and I think with the book of Proverbs, it's particularly interested in parents and children. So if you're like, I don't know where to start with any of this stuff, I would just say, start reading Proverbs, live it for yourself, and let your kids watch. Each of the first seven chapters of Proverbs begins with a line like this. Let me just read it. It says, this is, hear my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Hear, my son, if you receive my words. My son, do not forget my teaching. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. This goes on in chapter 6 and 7 and other places in the book of Proverbs. It's like a parent teaching and modeling for their kid godly character. And what seems to be pictured is this relationship between parents and children where parents are training and modeling godly living and teaching their children through many different challenging areas of life. They're living these truths and they're teaching their children to do the same. And I think, again, this applies to all of us, even if we don't have kids, if we're adults who live and serve around children. And I want to get practical here. I want to read a list of some of the topics that are covered just, again, in the first seven chapters of the book of Proverbs. These are topics that Proverbs shows parents, uh, that shows parents how to teach their kids and, and shows you how to model. So I want to listen for things that you would like your kids to know. These are different topics covered in the first seven chapters of Proverbs. How to choose good friends. It's in Proverbs 1. The consequence of wise or foolish living, also in chapter 1. The importance of pursuing wisdom and knowledge, chapter 2. The perils of sexual morality and sex outside of marriage, again in chapter 2. The importance of faith and trust in God for our future, chapter 3. The wisdom of humility, again in chapter 3. How to honor God with our money and why we should give generously, chapter 3. How the importance of corrective discipline from parents and from God how to deal with anxiety, how to be a good, wise, and wise person, to how to be a good neighbor, the problem with envying others, the importance of being an honest person, the problem with debt, the importance of diligence and hard work versus laziness, and the fleeting nature of physical beauty. These are the kind of things we would want our children to know about, right? 
They're the kind of things we want to model in our own lives as well. And so as we seek to intentionally train our children to be God-centered in all of life, there are going to be hundreds and hundreds of ways that that's going to play out. And it's going to be overwhelming. We've only just scratched the surface of all the ways and all the areas that our kids need instruction and models of godly living. It can, it can seem overwhelming, but let me give you four things today, uh, four ways you can model godly character. So it's going to be four things. If you're a note taker, you can take these home. Uh, they're inspired from some of the things we read in the book of Proverbs and the rest of the scripture. They're critically important. Uh, if you don't know where to start, again, start here. Number one, model faithful love for your spouse if you're married. If you're, if you're still married and you're with your, your spouse. Uh, and I, I've heard many wise people say that the, the biggest gift that we can give our kids is to show them a loving and faithful marriage. And, and I really do believe that. Uh, I think our daily interactions and care for our spouse shape our kids probably more than anything. Uh, our kids need to see us be kind and affectionate to one another. They need to see us being uh, generous and forgiving with one another. Our kids need to see parents work out problems together. Uh, I know my wife and I, we fight sometimes. You guys probably don't expect that. Um, and one of the things we try to do is if we fought in front of the kids, we want to apologize in front of the kids. Okay? Uh, they, they won't thank you for it now most of the time, but they will cherish it when they're older and they will hope to pass it on to their own children as a legacy. So we need to model faithful love for our spouse. Second thing, I think we need to model regular time with God. We need to model regular time with God. Your kids, very, I mean, I, I, I live in San Francisco and work at a church that's mostly young people. And um, kids model their relationship with God after what they see their parents doing. And I'm dealing with the, 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 the challenge of parents that didn't do with, that, with their kids all the time with these 20-year-olds. Your, your kids will do what they see you doing. Do your kids ever walk in on you reading the Bible or praying? Our children need to see that faith is not something you do on Sundays. Faith is not some place you go. It's a consistent moment-by-moment -moment walk with the living God. The third thing I would say is to model Christian vocation. Model Christian vocation. Christian vocation is using the gifts that God has given you to seek the greater good for humanity and to further God's mission in the world. Children need to know that you work... Whatever your job is not primarily for financial gain or personal fulfillment even, but because you are seeking to use your unique gifts for the greater good and for God's glory. They need to see your job as an outflow of your faith, not, not, not something that's, a, that's a, a competition for your family or your time. They need to see you working with diligently, with integrity, with character, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're working in the marketplace. So model Christian vocation. Fourth thing, and I think this is really important, especially if you feel, uh, for all of us, but especially if you feel overwhelmed, is, is to model repentance when you fail your children. Model repentance when you fail your children. You may feel like, I'm terrible as a parent. Well, you can be good at this one, okay? You are going to fail your kids. And one of the worst things parents can do is to hide their failings. Uh, I know for many of us, this is our instinct, Right? We feel like we're going to burden, uh, we can feel the burden and we can, importance of modeling godly character. And so we want to keep our kids from seeing the ways that we struggle, the ways we sin, the ways we doubt, the ways we fail. But, but there are two kind of outcomes that happen when we do that. Okay? When we hide our failings from our kids, uh, there's two things that happen. Both of them are negative. The first one is that if we're successful, like if we nail it, like they don't know we have any problems. Then we give the kid, our kids the impression that we are perfect and that they need to be perfect as well. And so when our kids fail, when they struggle, when they sin, they'll feel intense shame because they're not as wonderful and as perfect as we are. And so they start to keep up this game of false appearances. They hide their sin from you, just like you're hiding your sin from them. 
And they eventually give up trying and they often totally rebel because they know they can never measure up to you or the false version of yourself that you modeled for them. The second thing we can do is that if we're trying to hide our failings but we're unsuccessful, even though we're, we're hiding them, our kids eventually find out, they think we're hypocrites and liars. I had a really good friend. He had a very strict um, Christian father. And I remember he, him finding pornography on his dad's computer and just feeling like my dad is a total scam. Have, have, you, you know, you know, have you ever known someone that later found out their Christian father or their mother had an affair, they were previously married, they didn't hear it from their parents? It can be devastating to a kid. How much better for them to know from you that they're not perfect, that you're not perfect, Right? So they don't become disillusioned or calloused or untrusting of others. It's better to proactively share with our kids our failings, both small and large. They need to see us repenting before God and before others. They need to hear us asking for forgiveness for our failings. When we sin against our kids, we need to ask them for their forgiveness. And if you don't feel like you sin against your kids, like, I don't know, you guys, I need to get off stage and you need to start teaching me. <laughs> okay? I'm impatient. I'm, I'm uh, harsh at times. I have too high of standards at times. Um, this, this happened this week. Our, our, our family of five kids, and they've been homeschooled up until this point. And um, my wife just started teaching second grade, and all of our kids went to school for the first time. So we're dealing with like school uniforms and busy days and homework in the evenings, and everybody is snippy and angry and grumpy the whole week, basically. Um, and, and we have like a Monday movie night I do with my two older teenagers, and I was just frustrated by all the complaining and all the grumpiness that I just like stormed out of movie night. Like, I'm just, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, forget this. You guys, just whatever. It was, it was so childish. It was just totally, I mean, it was just embarrassing. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was frustrated rightfully. They were being ridiculous, the kids were. Um, but the way I handled it was wrong. And that nuance, right? Like sometimes you can be like, well, it's okay for me to act this way because you're acting that way. It's like, well, you might be wrong in acting this way, but it doesn't make it right for me to act away. And so on Tuesday, I had to go to my kids and say, listen, I'm really sorry. I blew it uh, yesterday. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm not perfect. And I apologize to them because I want them to know that it's okay to make mistakes. And I want them to see how you can make things that you didn't do right, how you can make them right. And I give them plenty of opportunity, genuinely. <laughs> So, so let me uh, finish the sentence we started with when we were laying out how we should train our children. Our last clause, it's this. We must intentionally train our children to be God-centered by modeling godly character, last phrase, in daily life. In daily life. I want to read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Uh, if you want, you can turn there. Deuteronomy is kind of the first section of the Bible. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It'll also come up on the screen. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it's a famous verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This verse is an incredibly important text in the Bible. The first section that reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Jews called it the Shema and prayed it every morning and every evening. It's, a, it's, like, it's like something that shaped their entire day. And that next section, verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is that thing that Jesus said we need to, the greatest commandment that reflects that God-centered life that we're seeking to model for our kids. 
And so we have this regular rhythm that God is one, the Shema. We have this view of God-centeredness and loving Jesus, or Jesus said of loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And in the, in the text, it goes on to tell us that we need to internalize these truths to model the God-centered life. Verse 6, it says this, And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. So, so live them. We own these truths. We live it out personally. But then we learn here that God's, God's truth, it's not supposed to end on us. We're commanded to intentionally teach it to the children around us. Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children. When are we supposed to do this? Formal setting, set the kids down. It's teaching God time. Maybe. But here's the key point. In regular daily life, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be like frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The final task for us as we imagine um, parenting well and the command to train intentionally our children is to live it out in daily life, to live it out formally and informally. Do you ever wonder, I remember I, I grew up with like kind of nominal Christian parents. I remember just being kind of confused about why Christians prayed before meals. Like is it some, and sometimes you still are around people like this, like is it some magic to make the food like not get you sick or to help you, food tastes better? It's like when people go on their mission trip, they really pray before their meal or something. You know, yeah, for some maybe that's, but that's a kind of sort of, I don't know, empty religion, right? But, but it's best, at its best, it's an intentional moment that people have put in front of them to remind themselves of gratitude to God in daily practice. And, and we need formal moments like this, even if it's not that, to daily teach and train our kids to be God-centered. But we also need informal moments, right? As we're going about, as we walk along the way moments, unplanned, teachable moments that we capitalize and we use to shape our children and to teach them. And if you live in the Bay Area, one of the great things is you, if you have kids or if you're around kids, you're, you're going to have lots of opportunity to have teachable moments. Um, when you see a, a homeless person, right? We have a, an issue here in the Bay Area. Do you ignore that moment? Do you just say something quick to kind of redirect your kids away? Or do you ever take the moment to explain the complexity of modern homelessness? Right? The Bible teaches the better course of action is to shape our kids in these moments. Do you explain that people in these situations have been products often of abusive or broken families? They may have mental illness issues. They may have physically been become addicted to drugs. They may have a combination of all of those things. And, and so we need to be compassionate, right? Because we don't know their story, but we know that the Bible says that God loves and saves the needy and the broken and that God reached down to us when we were needy and broken and he cared for us. It's a moment, tell the story of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. We need to capitalize on these moments and the Bay Area is going to give you plenty. Uh, in this respect and in many others, I think this is such a great place to raise kids because you are going to have opportunity to teach and train your kids. Uh, a very fun and funny situation happened uh, to us a few years back. Um, we were in San Francisco in the Castro district, district and we were going to get some ice cream. And there was a full-grown man, probably 50, 60 years old, totally naked, except for this tiny, like, gold pouch he had, like, cinched up on his man parts. And um, our kids are little. Our kids are probably, our youngest probably three or four. And um, they think it's hilarious. I mean, it's just like, what is happening? What is this, like, naked man? Like, they're just looking at him walking, like, and pointing and laughing. And there's a part of me that's like, he probably needs that. Like, he's ashamed a bit. Um, and so you see these crazy things, right? One of my kids, uh, we were going to church on a Sunday. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Beta Breakers race. Um, and so between my house and the church we attend uh, is Beta Breakers. And so one Sunday a year, uh, we, and this is before, we lived a little bit close, we walk and we're walking and our kids see some naked runners. 
And my, my daughter at the time, one of them, um, not the one who's here, so we're not, we're not embarrassing you, Harper. Um, she, she was like asking really like sincerely, like, why are they running naked? <laughs> like, if they fall down, won't they get hurt? And I'm like, yes, yes, they will. And then she was like, aerodynamics. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not it. That's not it either, sweetie. But, and this is really true, I did my best to explain. I, I told her, like, people love freedom. And for some people, freedom is their God. Freedom is what they worship. And they will do what they want to do, whatever they want to be free. They don't want anyone to tell them what to do or where to do it or how to do it. And so if we make freedom our ultimate God, it's not a very good God, is it? Nobody wants to hang with that guy. I don't want to sit on the Muni after him. <laughs> right? And there's this little nugget of a story about idolatry when we take a good thing like freedom and we make it an ultimate thing and we destroy community and we damage people. And so we have these moments as we go and we can view them as things we need to run from or things that we need to avoid or we view them as moments that are even given by God to teach our kids in the daily life how to follow God with their whole being. Okay? Let's revisit that sentence. We must intentionally train our children to be God-centered by modeling godly character in daily life. I really do hope you take some time today, maybe with a pen and paper, or with a spouse or partner, or even if you're single, and ask yourself, how are you doing at intentionally training the children in your life to be God-centered? How are you modeling godly character in daily life to the kids around you? Maybe you could take some time to make a plan to establish some goals, some patterns in life that are, you know, and it's going to look different for all of us for how you can serve and model and train and, 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 and help the kids around you know Christ. And even if you don't have people around you that you've immediately come, I'd like to add, consider the people around you, nieces, nephews, some kids, some parents, you know, some people like their, their only Christian thing they might ever hear, or encouraging thing even, is from a niece or from an aunt or an uncle that sends them a card. I mean, you don't know the ways you could impact people. Neighborhood kids. It could be as simple as committing to pray one day a week for the kids in your life or stalking, stopping to talk and building a relationship with a kid in your neighborhood. Uh, it's really providential. Our family friend Sarah is here. Um, she doesn't know I'm going to do this, and so we'll just talk to her. But Sarah, will you stand up just for a second? This is Sarah. Sarah uh, is single, and so she works at Twitter. She doesn't have any of her own kids, uh, but she has been an amazing encouragement to our family. Um, just this week, um, our kids, like we said, we went back to school, and I was walking through trying to get some of them to do chores and some of them to do homework, and I could hear on the phone that they were talking to Sarah, and she was asking them how their first few days of school went. And she does stuff like that when our oldest, when our oldest daughter was having a really hard time. Sarah's one of those people that spent time with her and cared for her. And so you can make a huge impact in the life of kids. Thank you, Sarah. Um, yeah. You can make a huge impact in the life of kids, even if you don't have your own. And you, this call to, to parent and to serve children well is a call for all of us. And so, um, yeah, there, there are people that, that even if you don't have your kids, they're making a, a real example for that. And so we can be a community. Coastside can be a community that cares for the kids in their midst. You guys are in the middle of a school. You can have a culture where kids are seen and cared for, where people are investing in them. Whether we're parents or not, we can make a major difference in the life of the children around us. We just need to be intentional. And so I'd be remiss if we didn't spend just a tiny bit of time talking about how we can honor our parents. Um, Proverbs gives a lot of, of wisdom about this as well. We've talked a lot about being a parent, but what about how do we honor parents? 
I want to read Exodus 20, uh, verse 12. It says this, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Proverbs, it's pretty clear about what we do as children and how we go about honoring our parents, but there's a bit of complexity in explaining how Proverbs talks about this. Uh, if, you, if you know, Proverbs is written to the Jewish people who lived in this pretty homogenous society, okay? There was a single national religion, there was a single ethnic heritage, and its original audience wasn't this multicultural society uh, where it would be common for, for kids to have a different set of values and even a different religion than their parents. And so Proverbs kind of assumes that parents are teaching their children how to follow and worship the God of the Bible. There's like an assumption in the text that that's what's happening, which is a bit different than the world today. And so uh, we need to do a bit of interpretation to know how to honor our parents, even if they don't share our values or our faith. And so Proverbs' basic message to children, that sentence that we've been doing uh, for how they can honor their parents is this. You honor your parents by listening to them and modeling the godly life they should have trained you to live. Honor your parents by listening to them and modeling the godly life they should have trained you to live. That's the message of Proverbs to children. And so I want to I read this, uh, this section from Proverbs. It makes it pretty clear. This is Proverbs 20, verse 7. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Ideally, again, we are to follow the righteous example of our parents. That's God's intention. Proverbs 10 says this, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 17.25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. In Proverbs, we are to honor our parents and make them glad by living a wise life and we dishonor them by living a foolish life. If you're a Christian today and your parents share your faith, it's pretty simple, right? You live this God-centered life, you live with godly character, your parents will be pleased and overjoyed when you do this. But what if your parents aren't believers? My, my wife and I, we've been missionaries overseas. We've had people from all different places where, where becoming a Christian was very complicated and it, was, it felt like it was a dishonor to people's parents. How do we honor our parents if they disagree about what is foolish and what is wise? Your parents might look at your faith and the choices you make as a Christian and think you're crazy. You are wasting your life. You're delusional. Or maybe your parents are the kind of like cultural Christians that are like, yeah, I'm glad you are a Christian, but you're kind of taking it a little too far. Maybe you just need to chill out a bit. In the wisdom of God, I think that the best way to honor our parents, even if they're not believers, even if they're nominal believers, is very similar to the way we are to best serve our children. I've modified that sentence we built earlier, and I think it summarized how we're to honor our parents regardless of their faith. It's this. We must intentionally love our parents by being God-centered and by modeling godly character in daily life. It's not that different. This may not always be understood or appreciated in the moment. Just like a parent who deals with a kid who pushes against their instruction or doesn't value their example, we still need to do the right thing and hope that in time our kids, or in this case our parents, will see the wisdom of the Christian life and the hope of the Christian message. It doesn't have to be heavy-handed or weird. You don't have to be like, we're going to pray at Thanksgiving because I'm a Christian now. But it does require wisdom and usually great patience. But I've seen this happen time and time again, that unbelieving parents can move from a place where they see your faith and your life as, as a rejection of their values and culture, and instead see it as something honorable and even desirable. God can change people. He can flip this dynamic on its head, where his intention was for your parents to, to model a godly life and faith for you, that, that, that he would use you to model that to your parents and that they would come to Christ. He can use you, the child, to influence your parents as they see your godly example to draw them to faith in Christ. God is, Jesus is really great at flipping things upside down. 
Jesus had to deal with these dynamics himself. His parents and his family didn't always seem to understand or agree with what he was doing. Mark chapter 3, Jesus, he's beginning his ministry. His brothers seem to think he's crazy, and they try to keep him from preaching and ministering publicly. They literally do. Like, Jesus, don't do this. But in time, they, 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 they see his life, they, they see uh, the resurrection, and, and things change. And after his death and resurrection, this is a description that we get of the early church and who was there. Acts 1. All these were in one accord, were devoted themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It took years, but in time, after witnessing his life and hearing his teaching, Jesus' family changed, and so can yours. Be patient, pray, follow God no matter what. Live God-centered, love your parents by modeling godly character. Even if that means repenting and asking forgiveness when you have or when you continue to do wrong. God can change your parents' heart just like he has changed yours. It's not that different. And so as we kind of wrap this up, I want you to know that Jesus is not just the model for how we honor our parents. Uh, He's so much more than that, so much more. The whole relationship between parents and children is designed by God to point us to this far greater reality of his love for us and to show us the ideal relationship that he wants to have with us. So God designed parents so that you would know what it means to be a child of God. He wants to be your father. He wants you to live and honor him as his daughter or as his son. Jesus shows us how to do this and even more, he makes it possible for us to live as God's children. So I want to close by reading a longer section from Galatians chapter 3. It says this, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, and catch this, guys, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's God's hope for us today. That we would live no longer as slaves, but as sons and daughters of the king. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for the message of the scriptures. Um for the ways that you have shaped the world so that we have the opportunity to parent and to love children. God, help us to do that well with the kids around us. And God, help us to be good children to our parents, to those who've invested in us. And God, as we do this and as we live, help us to see the greater reality behind that of you as a father and us as your desired children. God, that we would live in faithful, wise love with you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.